0: Hello and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science across Australia on the Community Radio Network. This half an hour on your radio where we'll talk about all things science related. My name's Stu, and on the show this week I'm going to talk about monsters of the deep. Oh,
1: oh, which which deep?
0: Well, the deep of the Great Australian Bite, which, which actually gets pretty deep, but also didn't realize that it depends who you ask how big the great australian bite is if you ask the australian uh, hydrographic survey they say it's one size if you ask the international one they say it's much bigger
1: and who are we going to go with? Who are we, who are we going to throw support behind on this uh, one?
0: Look, I think that the the, uh, the the monsters of the deep I'm talking about are probably from the the greater great Australian bite, <laughs> if you like. Um, <laughs> the greatest, the greatest Australian, Australian bite. bite.
2: Yeah. So how, how monsters we're talking, talking about? Like you know, sea serpents and oh, absolutely and
0: weird looking hydra things and all sorts of stuff. But most of it's only about. A couple of centimetres mm. long. You, really. need,
1: you need to get your magnification. They're mini monsters.
0: On. Mini monsters. Mm. Mm. They can still get you. But of course, there's, you know, southern right whales and tuna and all sorts of things down there as well. There's the big stuff too. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Chris. Well, I'm
2: going the other, I'm, I was going to say I'm going to the other end of the scale, but I'm also talking about small things. So maybe it's not the other end of the scale. Um, I've got another, after a few weeks after the, um, the bugs in the brain story, well, you know, the bacteria, people in people's yeah. brains, I've got another crazy brain story. Um, this is about uh, brain organoids, which are little kind of collections of brain cells grown in, in the lab that I think we discussed on Lost in Science before. Uh, now they are showing signs of a lot of neural activity and it raises questions of, is it possible to grow a thinking brain in a jar, which is kind of a scary thought.
1: Well, brains in jars. Yeah. Scary.
0: Scary. So, <laughs> And, and yeah. Claire...
1: Um, well, I've got small things in big spaces. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, bugs in space, or more specifically the uh, bacteria that they've just found on the International Space Station. And it's a f- potential effect on astronauts. Are these
0: aliens? No. Okay. So it's not it's not like the Andromeda strain and they're going to come back to Earth and infect everyone?
1: Mm. Well, you know, I mean, give bacteria long enough in space and you never know what will happen to them. It's completely different environmental conditions.
0: True. true. Yeah.
1: So, watch this space.
0: So one of the most frustrating things about science is that there are many more questions to be asked than there are dollars to investigate them. Uh, And in very practical ways, science costs money. Um, It also uh, costs money to pay for the time of scientists, but it costs money for equipment and facilities to analyze data, even though they may be collected by non-scientists. There's a lot of citizen science projects out in the world. Um, But one of the big drawbacks is that often organisations and businesses that have lots of money that they would like to direct towards science research are seen as having conflicting interests with the findings of the science. Um, So this is particularly true of the fossil fuel industries, uh, who've traditionally made their money digging up various fuel sources out of the ground and selling them. Uh, But increasingly, they're seen to be big contributors to renewable energy projects, so a lot of the Oil companies are actually repositioning themselves as energy companies, and they want to be seen to be, you know, doing renewable research. And you know, there's for years there's been solar research by a lot of the big oil companies. They have races and things with solar powered cars and that sort of thing. Um, so they obviously want to stay in the energy market and probably realize that the older sources are not good from a uh, a PR standpoint. Oh, I sure, they wouldn't be greenwashing. Yeah. Um, but also increasingly from a cost-effectiveness point as well, because as renewable energy gets cheaper to produce, well, it will be competitive with those uh, fossil fuels. So they want to be in the game. They want to be in the game still. Or closing down the game. Just changing the game, mm. possibly. Mm. Um, but recently there's been a lot of controversy surrounding proposals to drill for oil in the Great Australian Bight, which is a huge expanse of ocean and coastline, or a not-so-huge expanse of ocean and coastline, depending who you ask. Uh, So the International Hydrographic Service defines it as a massive bit of water which stretches from the southwest tip of Tasmania across to West Cape Howe in Western Australia and cutting out Bass Strait, so it's sort of an imaginary line between King Island and Cape Otway, basically, Um, and the top of Tasmania. But the Australian Hydrographic Service, considered it to be a much smaller area, which is about a quarter of the size of the International Hydrographic Survey's boundaries, um, it only stretches from Cape Pasley, I'm not sure if it's Pasley or Paisley, it's yeah. spelt P-A-S-L-E-Y anyway, uh, Western Australia to Cape Carnot in South Australia, so it's actually a little tiny little bit of the little uh, semi-circle that they say. Um, and... Regardless of which uh, size you are choosing to look at, it was generally considered to be relatively empty, um, sort of a marine desert due to the lack of sediment coming off mainland Australia. So there's not really any... Oh, there's no rivers there in that yeah, part there's of no them. there's no rivers there. There's no rivers taking sediment out into mm. the ocean, so there's no sort of flow of nutrients out into the ocean. And in other parts of the ocean around Australia, that's how the sort of... Cycles get maintained is that uh, nutrients wash off the land into the water and um, You know support those ecosystems. It's quite deep too. I imagine yeah in parts Um So there's lack of runoff uh, and there's not many large rivers. And there's also not much on the land either in those areas. They're quite arid parts of the land. So there's not huge amounts of vegetation or anything. So the the ecosystems are a little bit uh, There's a lot of cliffs. Mm. There are. And there's cliffs as well, which is Mm. famously, though, null arbor. No trees. True. Mm. Um, But it was also because they, they thought that there was not much there because... Nobody had ever gone to have a proper look and see what was there. That's fair. That's fair. Um, <laughs> Isn't fair though. Well, well there's not, there's not that many just people living assumption. around there. There's, we just well, it looks pretty I mean, empty. Mm, looks pretty anyway. empty from here, mm, yeah. up on the top of the cliffs. Yeah. Um so as part of the environmental impact survey related to oil exploration in the region, there has been a huge collaboration between BP, CSIRO, SARDI, who's the South Australian Research and Development uh, Institute, I think, Uh, the University of Adelaide and Flinders University, and they've gone and had a proper look. So um, it was a really long project, and they went and collected and photographed 1267 species of animal, uh, a third of which were unknown to science, so they discovered 400 new species of animals in their survey and this goes back to how big the area is Mm. they're actually looking at so they're basing it on the international survey parameters so if you look at any slab of ocean that big the the scientists who were behind this one said yeah you'll probably find about that proportion of new uh, species which just goes to show how many things we have never seen before on Earth, um, and we don't actually know that they're there. There um, are more
2: undiscovered species in the oceans than there are on the surface of the moon. That's easily <laughs> that's, done. That's easily easily done. Easily
0: yes. done. Okay. Um, so most of these are tiny invertebrates. There were no giant monsters of the deep lurking around. Um, well, not that they saw on this on this uh, trip. Too um, clever to be seen, maybe. Maybe. To be maybe. to be picked up in their little sampling net, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. they've got a little tiny yeah, a little <laughs> tiny goldfish net. Um, but, but, you know, these tiny creatures form the basis of the food network in marine environments. So, you know, they're the food sources for much bigger animals. Um, the bite is also home to southern right whales. There's tuna fisheries, there's sardine fisheries all throughout the region. So, um, well aware of that because obviously there's economic reasons to know where the tuna is. Um, but the survey ran for six years starting in 2011, but it was mainly focused on deep sea sampling from 200 meters deep to five kilometers deep. Wow. So it goes pretty deep out there. Um, and that was where they were finding most of these new things that they'd never seen before. Um, and they brought them up, photographed them, but as they discovered, as you bring things up from a depth of five kilometers, (laughs) when they get to the surface, there's not a lot of coherence to them. Um, so yeah, they did have, they photographed them really quickly and tried to maintain them as well as they could, but then they sort of put them in alcohol and you end up with
1: blobby mess.
0: Yeah. gelatinous blobs in the bottom of the jar after a little while. Um, so while this was, uh, going on, a number of oil exploration licenses for the bite were granted by the Australian government, but none have been used by the interested party. So no one's actually done any drilling in the bite yet. And, Even BP, who put up a whole lot of money for this survey, have publicly stated they're not pursuing exploration in the Bight, but they will continue to fund marine research in the area um, just because, you know, they they feel that that would be a good thing for the people of South Australia. Um, But also, if nothing else, it's a really good PR exercise.
2: Listen to Lost in Science. My name is Chris, and yes, I am talking about brain organoids. I think we've discussed these on Lost in Science before. I think you might have talked about them before, Stu.
0: Yeah, they, they came up. There's, there was a whole sort of flurry of, of people getting different tissue types to grow in vitro, and that was yeah. one of the most astounding ones. They went, oh, we grew a bit of a tiny bit of a brain in a jar.
2: Yeah, so basically, it it, it is... Yeah, like you said, growing bits of tissue and um, using stem cells that you basically coax into forming different Becoming kinds of cells. Becoming brain cells. Yeah, but also, the, importantly, they're like um, they're on a kind of a 3D lattice, so they make a three-dimensional shape, and that way they're not just like a flat bit. They can actually form like an organ structure. And they can last longer being in that 3D form as well. Um, but they are tiny. They're on like only a few millimeters across these things. But yet they still contain millions of cells and these cells can form neural networks and they can send electrical signals to each other. Wow, that's what that's what brain cells doing. Yeah. Now these are this makes them great for research because they allow neuroscientists to examine living human brain tissue, um, so that we can learn how it functions. Um, they're even more than that. they these are this is developing human brain tissue, so you can see how essentially brains grow and develop their functions, uh, and it's so you can also study how they develop problems. So there's been these things have already been used to study microcephaly. You know, which was caused, for instance, caused by the Zika virus. You can see how that was that kind of thing works, and also things like uh, schizophrenia. You know, um, disorders like schizophrenia, which is pretty much impossible to deserve, observe developing in the fetal brain. Something like that, um, and of course, they have uh, ethical advantages over the alternative which was commonly animal experimentation. So it's Which kind are a
1: lot of, less like humans anyway. So. Which doesn't
2: really work. Yeah. There's mm. a lot of things that have been studied on animals, particularly with brains, that don't Translate across to, to humans very well. So, yeah, it sounds like a win win win. Um, but there is a new development that does raise the question of possible future ethical problems with these brain organoids. Uh oh. Yes. So, um, a researcher called Alison Miotri and his team at the University of California, San Diego, they cultured hundreds of brain organoids for 10 months. And because, like I said, they can live a long time. Um, and they tested their genetics and that kind of stuff, but they also recorded their electrical activity using an EEG, an electroencephalogram. Now, like I said, these, um, these signals, these electrical signals between the cells have been observed before, but these researchers noticed that the brain organisers were firing much more at a much higher rate than had previously been seen. Um, they weren't like really kind of smooth wave patterns like you get with a mature human brain, but your yeah, alpha waves and your yeah, delta waves and those kind of things. Um, but they, they compared these signals to a database of EEG signals and found that they matched, or they were similar to those of premature infants born at about 25 to 39 weeks.
1: I mean, that doesn't mean that, I mean, well, maybe what does that mean? Well, that's the question. (laughs) That is the question. What does that mean? How old
0: are the, how old are the brain organoids? 10 months. Right. But they're tiny. Remember, they're tiny. Tiny.
1: So they're a bit more overcooked
2: than the premature infants. Quite possibly.
1: Ten months. But
2: it's a really interesting thing. Now, Whoa. I mean, now no one's saying no. One, okay, no one's saying that these are actually thinking brains because remember they're like I said they're tiny. Um, they're limited. The things that limits their size because they don't have things like blood vessels and that kind of stuff. They can't grow very big because they don't have that that um, supply, they don't have the infrastructure required for a real brain. They also lack, of course, any sensory input or motor control, motor output. Um, yeah, and I
1: mean, they don't have the potential either. To? To get themselves any motor output or... No, no. <laughs> grow uh, a body. Yeah,
2: unless you connect them to other stuff. So, Mawatri um, <laughs> says now he's going to connect them to other things uh, and grow them for longer to see what happens.
1: Oh, Oh, right. Yeah,
2: but look, he did say that if, he would halt the project if there was any evidence that they had become self-aware. But he considers at the moment they're in a grey zone or a grey matter zone. How, yeah. does he, how does
1: he halt yeah. the
0: project if they become self-aware? Can you give us an
1: example of how um, these cells would? He would assess self-awareness in these cells.
0: Well, I suppose the, the way you do
2: it. That's it, it, a very. It's a very good question. Uh, no one quite knows. There's no answer to this. This is like a completely new situation that hasn't been encountered before. Um, there's an interesting comparison to um, p- patients who are non-responsive following a brain injury. Sometimes you get people, their brains are completely cut off, essentially from the outside, well, there's no, again, there's no um, actual output or even sensory input, and yet um, there are ways to kind of electrically poke their brains and find that there is signs of activity, or you measure signs of activity within the brain. Sometimes you can tell, yeah, these people are still kind of aware inside there. So, there is talk about using those same kind of techniques with these brains. Again, they're tiny, so they're not a full brain, but using the same kind of stuff to see how they respond to stimuli and whether they show any kind of coordinated activity. Um, yeah, so that that's the kind of stuff that you can do to see if it shows any signs of that would match how a, a real brain works. Um, I think another interesting comparison, though, um, just for me, was thinking about like uh, research in artificial intelligence. You know, people have been trying for years to build, say, intelligent computers, thinking computers with, you know, very slow success. And here they just, like, whack some human brain cells together and they start thinking all by themselves. It shows that maybe we're we're, um, going the wrong way, I suppose, with stuff. But anyway, like, but then the question is, what, even if they could, like, you could see they were thinking in some way, what would that mean? I mean, does that matter if they can, like rudimentary processing, or is what important is, say, the ability to understand or to suffer, to feel pain or to suffer, and do they have that kind of um, architecture as well? Um, No no one really knows. So when it comes to ethics and these kind of things, uh, you can compare it, say, to human embryo experimentation. Now, the general rule with that is they don't go beyond 14 days of growth. That's when the embryo starts to develop structure, You know what they call the primitive streak, which is the first sign of, of higher structure. Um, these are obviously a lot older than 14 days, but again, they're not an embryo. They're just part of a brain. You know, they, as you said, Stu, they grow other parts of organs. They grow bits of liver or bits of muscle or heart. No one worries about those, but because it's a brain and it starts to show this sign of activity, we start to question, is this a real... Uh, well, I guess, you know,
0: the question is, you, the brain is the part that interprets the, uh, the pain signals from the rest of the body, so...
2: We see the brain as the person, I yeah, suppose, don't we? Yeah,
0: Look, if there are no ethical problems, then it's
2: great, because it means that these organised could tell us even more than we had thought about how brains function. Um, but yeah, there is a lot we don't know. This could rapidly get a lot more complex than um, we have expected. Uh, and sometimes I think our brains don't grow quickly enough to uh, understand everything that's going on with science. traveling through another dimension, a dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind, a journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's
0: the signpost up ahead. Your next stop. Lost in science.
1: So it's every astronaut's worst nightmare, being stuck on a spaceship with life forms that want to kill you. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. Well, potentially that very thing is happening on the International Space Station right now.
2: Hang on, this is serious. Why is this top of the news?
1: <laughs> uh, well, let I me. Didn't okay, that all right. Is there, is there a cover
2: up? Is there a cover up? And
1: I'm, I'm, I'm not even talking about the Russians and the Americans not getting along. I'm talking about Enterobacter,
2: oh, Chris. Oh, this is small things again. This is like Stu's monsters of the deep that turn out to be like. <laughs> <laughs>
0: a couple of centimetres long. Well, your yeah. brains turn out to be a couple of centimetres okay, long. Okay, true.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: this isn't even a couple of centimetres. These these bacteria are very Micro- small.
0: Micrometres. Yes, okay. they are
1: microbes. Um, but they are potentially disease-forming microbes. And um, they've just been found to be living alongside um, in colonies um, alongside astronauts on the space station. So, a bit of background. At the moment, NASA are cataloging the microbe communities in the crew-associated space station environment. So wherever, wherever there's crew, they're looking at what microbes um, live with them and alongside them. Um, and just published some results about it in the journal BMC Microbiology. So they got Scott swabs from a whole lot of areas in the space station and identified the bacteria either by uh, cultivating them or by using different molecular techniques and genomic techniques. And from the categorization, they found five different types of Enterobacter bacteria from two different locations on the International Space Station. So do you want to try and guess the two locations of in the space station that the Enterobacter was found, knowing that the microbes typically are found in solid sewage and in the human gut? Well, well I
2: would... I'll say i um, the obvious place i had to think, yeah, like gut, like you know, the 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 dunnies.
1: Yes, the and space toilet, ding ding ding, Correct. and
2: the food preparation area.
1: No, not the food preparation oh, area.
2: Sleeping area.
1: No, not the sleeping area. The gym equipment. Ah, oh, yeah. <laughs> they
0: don't have to bring their towel, do they? They forget their towel. <laughs> yeah, and see, you know, this this is why I don't go to gyms.
1: Yeah, I know. I think there's a f- lot of conclusions to be drawn. Between you know this finding and um yeah what gyms on Earth are like as well, so <laughs> bear that in mind, listeners.
0: <laughs> I have always wondered this though because a lot of a lot of the way we clean our clothes and all sorts of things, we wash them, we hang them out in the sun. The UV light kills all the bacteria, and then we bring them back in the house. They can't do that in space. They don't mm. have a space clothesline. That they can just run their towels out on the space clothes. Wouldn't line.
2: it evaporate like very quickly and they'd be like
0: causing radiation that would kill everything? Yeah, probably. But how do they open the window? Hmm. <laughs> well,
1: <laughs> they have a very dry environment though. Yeah. Yeah. Um so yeah, so just about Enterobacter. So they can be um pretty pretty bad bacteria. They can cause soft tissue infections, urinary tract infections, respiratory issues. And a whole lot of other complications, but also quite importantly, many strains of Enterobacter carry antibiotic resistance. Um, okay, at this moment it's important to note that the species that were isolated living in space were actually not harmful to humans. Um, yet. Yet. Exactly. So um, once the researchers genetically determined that they determined that they are Enterobacter. They used a type of gene sequencing and modelling to work out that even though they're not virulent now, there's a 79% probability of becoming disease-forming in the future.
0: That's quite high.
1: It's really high, isn't it? Yeah,
0: I hope they fed that into a computer and it came out with a with a voice automation to give them that result because it's <laughs> just so much more impressive. Yeah.
1: Um, and also not only... They have a high chance of becoming disease forming, but they also had genes present that were associated with um, antibiotic resistance. Problematic, once again. Yeah. Um, Yes, so now the researchers are suggesting that maybe some microbiology needs to happen in space to examine exactly what the effect of microgravity will have on these. Um, on these colonies of bacteria that live alongside the astronauts, are they more likely to become more virulent in microgravity or less likely what's happening with bacteria in space? Everyone, what's happening <laughs> anyway, all this has got me thinking, how do the astronauts stay clean? And also what happens to human waste, uh, once it's been space deposited, um, And what's going on with that gym equipment
2: as well? Oh, I think that's simple. Like if you were like at home and you had like a gym equipment and it was just you, you probably wouldn't bother wiping it down much. You'd be like, that's just my gunk. And if it was someone that you were sharing the, you know, in confined space with, you probably also get quite comfortable with their bodily sweat and stuff like that. And you're just going, (laughs) nah, it's just Bill.
1: So it's just comfort. I think so. That's causing this. Right. Okay. Um, so to understand a bit more about this potential um, poop bacteria in space, I thought I would give you the procedural directions that are given to astronauts on how to use the toilet and then, um, and then we'll have a better understanding of what happens to this human waste. So these are the procedural directions of how to use a toilet in space. Um, okay, one, first position yourself over the toilet seat.
0: Yes. Pretty standard so far.
1: There is a toilet seat in space.
0: There are handles. To- well, two,
1: secure yourself with straps. Yeah. So not handles, but straps. Okay. Um, for <laughs>
0: Newton's second law of motion. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh dear. For number ones, connect the personal urination device to a long plastic tube in the wall. Um, each astronaut has their own personal urination device. And very civilized. Then, very civilized. Yeah, and then an air current sucks the liquid into a waste compartment. <laughs> For number twos, place a specially adapted bag into the toilet bowl, then activate the vacuum, oh. which mimics the effect of gravity, as well as a series of fans which purify the
0: air. <laughs> so you wouldn't even have to. You wouldn't even have to like. It's like a Japanese toilet. You wouldn't Great. have to like concentrate. And- like it would just get sucked out.
1: It would. It I would, would. say
0: to, to me it sounds like having a pooing space just sucks. Yeah. It,
1: I mean, yeah, so then you have to seal the collection bag. So you have to deal with it after. Seal the collection bag and dispose of it in the waste compartment under the toilet. And um, they they approximate on average um, there's at least 10 more minutes per toilet session Um you, you you spend at least 10 more minutes in the toilet in space than you would um, on Earth. So that's a lot more time Yeah. per toilet Yeah, session. that is a lot more time. Yeah. And what happens to the waste? Well, the number ones are mixed uh, in with the other wastewater products like moisture, sweat, um, towel residue, and get purified back into drinking water. And the number twos are collected in a tank, and then when it's full, it's put into an unmanned resupply ship, which is then jettisoned back to Earth and then burns up in the upper atmosphere on re-entry. So, there you go.
2: There's, there's, there's meteorites of poo. Meteors of poo.
1: Exactly. Potentially, the enterobacter from the International Space Station is now raining back down on So, us. when you
2: see, like, a shooting star in the <laughs> sky, you go,
1: mummy, it's a... It's so pretty. It
2: Make be. a
0: wish. <laughs> yeah.
1: Make a wish. It's <laughs> astronaut
0: hope. poop. Yeah. that's all we've got time for on this episode of lost in science thanks for tuning in and joining us lost in science is recorded at the studios of 3cr in melbourne and broadcast across australia on the community radio network with the financial assistance of the community broadcasting foundation if you want to talk to us talk back to us uh you can get in touch we have a gmail account lost at gmail uh you can also find us on twitter and on the facebook Uh, And if that's not enough Lost in Science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get Lost Lost in Science! Science!